Welcome to Foolish Voices, a Company of Fools podcast. Company of Fools is a professional theater company based in Sun Valley, Idaho, and is a proud part of the Sun Valley Museum of Art. More information can be found online at svmoa.org. Welcome to Foolish Voices. I'm Scott Palmer, Producing Artistic Director of Company of Fools. And on this show, we talk to a wide range of theater artists, both here in Sun Valley and all across the world, about how the current global health crisis is impacting their work, about their creative lives, and about their hopes for the future of our art form. Please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at svmoa.org. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of talking with the very first fool, Rusty Wilson. Rusty is a freelance theater artist based in Richmond, Virginia, and since moving to Richmond in 2005, he has directed a number of critically acclaimed productions, including Cadence Theater's John, for which he received an RTCC Best Director in 2017, Sight Unseen, and In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play. Prior to moving to Richmond, Rusty spent 10 years serving as the founding artistic director of Company of Fools. Favorite directing credits with the Fools include Uncle Vanya, James Joyce's The Dead, Waiting for Godot, and other desert cities, among others. The company received the Idaho Governor's Award in 2004 and continues to be one of Idaho's leading arts institutions. Rusty currently serves as the Director of Theater and Arts Chair at St. Christopher's School and is an associate artist and teacher for Cadence Theater. The very first fool of them all. Welcome to Foolish Voices, Rusty Wilson. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's and, great to be here. <laughs> and having spent some time with you, I can say you are, in fact, a fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say that's pretty true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are going to talk about why you why you all decided to name Company of Fools, Company of Fools, in just a minute. Okay. But before we get to that, I want to find out where are you and how are you doing? So I'm in Richmond and I'm at home and uh, I'm doing great. Uh, my wife and I are, are, are healthy and um, fortunately we are able to actually work from home. Um, I'm still teaching full time at St. Chris via Zoom meetings and you know other online uh, programs. And, um, and my wife is doing the same thing uh, and as she is the director of education for Cadence Theater. And so we're all just trying to adapt to this whole new, like, non, non-personal screen, you know, engagement kind of situation. How's that going? You finding it frustrating or is it's, it all fine? You know, I, 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 miss, I miss the in-person uh, element of it. I really do. I mean, it's great. I can, I can teach class in my pajamas, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, I do, I miss uh, the, the personal contact with the boys at school. And of course, um, things have, things got really shaken up as far as my artistic work um, because of this uh, pandemic. And so that's kind of a big question mark right now as far as when we can get back to uh, producing and, and having people congregate. And have you have you actually lost some projects as a result of yes. this? Yes, yeah. yeah, I lost. I was doing. Uh, I was directing directing um, Sam Shepard's True West, and uh, then was slated to do K two, and I was also directing a play at school 
uh, which I think would be an awesome play for the fools, um, Theophilus North. Oh, right. Do you know that I, story? I've, I've heard of it. It's um, it's basically it's a play adaptation of Thornton Wilder's last novel. Right. And uh, I didn't know this until I kind of got into the story, but um, Thornton Wilder was born a twin and his brother died at birth and his brother's name was Theophilus. And so he basically wrote this novel at the end of his life, imagining the life of his brother, um, which it's just, it's just an awesome uh, story. And funny and uplifting and all about the world being connected and and uh, it's it's got such a positive message on how we can be um, better human beings you know yes well yes I mean I think I think we all know we need we need that right now <laughs> that is a that would be a useful handbook for people yeah. it sounds amazing so are those productions that you just discussed are they postponed I mean are well, Richmond I mean, sort the, of in the same place as the rest of us? Oh yeah, just wondering what the world's going to be like. Everything shut down. So I mean, everything as far as my my stuff at school and directing that play, that's all done. Um, And we will not be able to congregate. I don't believe uh, at at school until. I mean, I know it's a big question mark now, but it looks like not until possibly the fall. I don't know, Um, but it it seems like we're going to be doing this remote thing for a while. Right. And I, I mean, I know that you are uh, you are driven and passionate about producing theater. Are you finding uh, are you finding this to be a pause? Are you are you raging against the machine or are you just sort of I'm, sitting I'm in your PJs really, with your feet up? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not really raging against anything. I'm I'm saddened by it and I'm saddened by the tenuous position it puts a lot of uh, theater artists uh, in as far as their work and and being able to make a living and all those kinds of things. Um, but I'm trying to take advantage of uh, the time that we have here at home, um, reading a lot and I'm watching some, I'm still teaching a world cinema uh, class. So I'm getting to watch a lot of great mo- movies and um, taking walks, you know, take, walking the dog. And by the way, I apologize if my dog Nala starts barking, I'm down here in the kitchen and anytime something moves outside, she barks. That's that's completely fine, not a problem. You will not be the first uh, participant in the podcast who's had a creature in the room with you. So I'm sure. completely understandable. So Rusty, you, I'm, I'm interested in just hearing a little bit about your history with the fools. I mean, you are the, you are the history of the fools. Um, oh. <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering if you can just tell me and our listeners, for people who don't know, where the name Company of Fools comes from. Well, um, back in like 1992, I had, I had gotten pretty disenchanted with uh, kind of pursuing the audition uh, kind of piecemeal kind of thing, getting a part in a play and working with people that um, really for me artistically, we were not in sync. And I was basically just kind of trying to get hired, you know, Um, and I became disenchanted with that. And so I found myself, and I didn't even think about it, but I just stopped auditioning for stuff. And during that lull, I had, uh, there's an essay by an English painter 
uh, Cecil Collins, and it's called The Vision of the Fool. And I, um, I'm, somehow my mother introduced me to this guy via a long distance call. And he's kind of a big time painter in England. Uh, he's dead now, but, uh, but, and I was lucky I got uh, his uh, painting, The Orange Fool, and I got that shipped over here from the Tate Museum. And that essay became the inspiration for looking at the fool in a more enlightened way. Um, and so we, the, the people who were involved at the beginning, we spent a lot of time thinking about the name of the company and different variations of kind of fool this or fool that. Uh, and company, we, we certainly were a company and we were founded um, basically as th that being an integral part of why this theater would exist. Having a common way of working and approaching theater and we trained together and so company was big. And uh, Company of Fools just felt, as silly as it may have sounded to people initially, it felt like a true representation of what we were trying to do. And so that's how it came about. And, yeah, I, uh, I love, I mean, it, I love when I first <clears throat> applied for this position and I saw, I saw <laughs> that there was a producing artistic director's job available for a theater called Company of Fools. I was like, well, those are my people, um, <laughs> that, you know? Um, and, and I love, I mean, I love that sort of uh, the philosophical foundations upon which the Company of Fools was founded, right? That, that whole idea that, that you know, when people think of fools, they just think of a court jester who's sort of an idiot with, with nothing to do but just make people laugh. But in actual fact, there's this beautiful kind of innocence and openness and joy that comes from, from that philosophical foundation that I think um, just really speaks to the importance of theater broadly and certainly speaks to the nature of Company of Fools as, a, as an institution here in the Valley. So, yeah. so but, you, but you basically started the Fools in Richmond, right? Like that was... Yeah, um, we started here, um, as you know, uh, Denise uh, Simone, we were, we were married at that time. And um, we took a loan out and converted our garage into a studio. <laughs> and then, yeah, no. And from there we started, I, I had a series of dinners with various artists in the community to find out who was attracted to this idea of training in a specific way and approaching theater in a certain way and everybody going back to kind of square one. And um, we assembled a fairly small group of about six or seven. The garage got done and then we started having weekly classes and we did that for a year and a half. And- um, Before and you even ever produced anything, you were just, yes. you were just developing the sort just. of ensemble model. Yep, and 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 then uh, we felt like it was the right time after a year and a half to to go ahead and put our training into a tangible thing that people could share, and so we did uh, two evenings of Tennessee Williams one acts um, at this place called uh, um, uh, the Hanover Tavern, which at that time was shut down and abandoned but we were able to use all of the spaces inside, upstairs, downstairs, small rooms, they have a theater there. And so we had an audience of 30 each night come into the space and then we led them to the different spaces where the various plays were taking place. And it was a really exciting time. 
I mean, the, the work was so visceral and intimate and honest, and it was a different kind of playgoing experience. And that, that you know, in, uh, kind of encouraged us. Uh, the next thing we did was a full production of The Glass Menagerie, which also was a, just a, a beautiful experience, I think, for all involved. And we did, our final piece here in Richmond was Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. And of course, that's the piece that Bruce saw and got you, the idea that- Can you, you can know, you tell our listeners which Bruce you are referring to? Uh, Bruce Willis. Oh, right, that Bruce. <laughs> that one. <laughs> um, yeah, he came to our last performance of Danny in the Deep Blue Sea and, uh, and then caught up with us afterward. And we just chatted a little bit about what, what it would be like to maybe bring this operation out to uh, Haley and be able to use the Liberty Theater as our home space. And, um, you know, Denise and I and our daughter, Russell, who is, by the way, the logo for the Fools. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think she still is, isn't she? She's around. She's around. Yes. Her face appears on lots of different things throughout the building, for sure. <laughs> so we, we went out to visit and we decided to take a big leap of faith. Um, and we, we made the jump. And it, while it was difficult the first few years, because uh, there are no job guarantees, there's no money or that kind of thing. Um, we had uh, support in terms of office space and a place to actually do the, uh, to do plays. But everything else, we had to start from scratch because we didn't know anybody. Um, so it was all a brand new kind of adventure. And look at you guys now. Yeah. You know, <laughs> 25 years, man. I it's it's wild. It really is wild. I mean, you and I have had a chance to sort of share a glass of wine and sort of catch up when you were when you were here over the mm -hmm. summer. And one of the things that I I you and I sort of share is this uh, sense of um, utter shock and and delight at the fact that um, sometimes when you start a theater company, they stick around. They they <laughs> actually succeed and survive for long periods of time. Who yep. could have guessed that, that was a thing that happened? <laughs> well, it did, and I'm I just feel very blessed and and uh, and so proud of the company for continuing its great work, and um, and and uh, absolutely happy that you're on board now. Thank uh, you, Rusty. Thanks. And um, yeah, I'm just I'm kind of. This was a big adventure for me in my life, and uh, I'm very proud of it. Well, I can honestly tell you that everyone here and and across the state and all of the various actors that we have worked with over the many years, we all owe you a, a, a big debt of gratitude. Thank So thank uh, you for, for jumping welcome. into the unknown. <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, one of the things that I find really fascinating about that story is this sort of... Um, the birthplace of the fool really being kind of found spaces and uncovered spaces and non-traditional spaces. And I'm wondering, yeah. I'm wondering if you, if you have thoughts about, about, about what those remarkable discoveries of kind of making theater wherever you can and finding energetic spaces that aren't necessarily traditional theaters. Do you think that's a useful place for us to be right now as theater makers given well, the current global health crisis? I think as far as theater makers right now, I, I just think no matter whether it's a found space or it's a regular theater, I just think it, you, you can't congregate, you know? So I, I'm, 
it begs the question of uh, since we are not able to congregate in person, um, I, something like I just watched. Um, do you know the the play or the I don't know what it is, but it's called Stars in the House. No. Uh -uh. Um, well, David Lindsay Abair's uh, first play that I saw when it was first running in New York, um, they got the cast back together via Zoom or whatever it is, and um, they just did a, a, a reading of it um, on Saturday, and uh, David kind of narrated and, and read the stage directions, and it was the original cast, and I remember them so specifically, and it was brilliant. And it was just a beautiful way to spend the afternoon and revisit a play and having these actors that hadn't done this play in 20 years, it's 20, mm. that, that's how long ago, um, just come to the table and knock it out of the park in, the, in their own living rooms, you know, uh, separately. It was really, I, I felt really uh, inspired by that. And um, so I, I feel like that kind of a thing is awesome uh, to happen. And they're doing that on a regular basis uh, with that program called Stars in the House. And uh, if you haven't, you should check it out. It's, it's, it's worth it. Yeah, I'll make sure to look that up and then I'll, I'll put a link to that um, in the podcast description so our listeners can, can follow up on it as well. Yeah. I mean, are, you finding, are you finding yourself torn at all or or what has your experience been of this sort of feeling that um our art form which requires you know co-presence of actor and artist and audience this sudden shift to really this urgency to create things online how are you i mean what are your thoughts about that um well scott i i don't feel that urgency myself um i I think the first online thing that I've I've participated in was this reading on Saturday, and that was just such a a welcome uh, breeze of hope because I had memories of the play and of the performances, and of course uh, David is a friend, and it was that was just it warmed my heart to participate in that. I, I don't know. I know a lot of people are doing things like they're they're doing monologues and sending them out and that kind of thing. Honestly, um, I I miss the time to, uh, because of working so much. I miss reading time, and so I've been spending a lot of time enjoying the process of storytelling uh, through books again, and I'm really enjoying that. And and of course plays as well, and particularly uh, books and film. So I'm kind of getting my, my theater fix via that until we figure out what is gonna be possible. I mean, I, I can't imagine a vital theater that does not include presence. Right. Of, yeah, I just, that, I don't know. I don't know what you call it when, it's, when you're doing it via a screen. But to me, it removes something vital about the core of what theater is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I see all of these sort of back and forth comments and debates online and American Theater Magazine and all these other places yeah. where they're like, stop telling people they can't do theater online. And my kind of response to that is, I'm not telling anybody they 
can't create material and entertainment and work online but I'm worried about saying that people can create theater online because it's sort of, you know, it, it feels like a different art form. It feels like a different vehicle, a different platform to be expressive. And I, I support that and I love that and I want that to be successful. And I want anyone who feels the need to create and, and have that work seen, I want them to do that. But I, like you, I worry about um, what happens when the spark when the magic, when the electricity of being present in a room, even, even as a director working with an actor, right? It doesn't even necessarily have to mean uh, an audience being there, but right. just the, the magic of that co-presence, the magic of that co-creation, uh, that's, that's where my heart is sort of feeling concern. Um, what, what do I, we do as theater makers who are focused on that creation of work that is co-present? What do we do? And I love the fact that what you're doing is you're reading and you're telling yourself stories by watching films and you're engaging with uh, various aspects of our art form um, that will, you know, feed you and inspire you and and get you to a place where you're going to be re ready to step back into the rehearsal room when we can. Yeah, I mean, I'm I really I think of it as um, I, I'm filling up the gas tank. I'm 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 nourishing myself in other areas so that when we do get, get back in the rehearsal hall, um, I might have a few more things to bring to the table. Right. And, um, you know, I, I think that's a positive. Right. Rusty, I'm interested in your thoughts too about, about this, the notion of ensemble building and company development. I think, you know, one of the things that um, that you and I share, and I, and since I've only been at Company of Fools for just a short period of time, have uh -huh. have hadn't haven't really had a chance to sort of do that sort of level of ensemble building work with the artists here. But certainly, when I worked at Bag and Baggage and at previous at previous companies, you and I share that that desire to have an artist ensemble that speaks the same language, right? Yeah. That approaches the work from the same perspective. Um, what do you, what would you encourage artists to think about in this downtime um, about, about their training? Well, I mean, you know, everybody is different in the way they look at um, making theater. I think um, in, I would, I would venture to say that the lion's share of theater artists are freelance people. And they're people that kind of, they get cobbled together for a particular project at a particular time. And I feel like the structure that we have in the American theater, at least for uh, equity houses, is pretty much three weeks in a play. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and to me, that is the most anti-artistic formula for making theater that I can think of. So that, and that really was one of the, um, the motivators for uh, uh, creating the company. I did not want to get stuck in this kind of formulaic thing. We would work, and when the play was ready to share, we would share. And um, I know that's not always a realistic uh, situation in terms of financing the theaters and the, that kind of work. Um, but that to me is the thing that floats my artistic boat. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, I, I've been in situations where I had to navigate a big, you know, uh, equity house, big play and all done in basically two and a half weeks, then tech, then the show. And I have to say that was one of the most 
unfulfilling artistic experiences I've ever had. And uh, I probably will choose not to do that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to think a little uh, more intimately these days, um, the plays that I'm attracted to. I used to really want to work on the big classics, you know, and, and I've had a, a great time doing things like Virginia Woolf, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and all of those kinds of stories here, and I've had very great success with those. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm, my own personal interest and the stories that are being, that are speaking to me right now are of a more intimate nature, uh, particularly with people like Beckett. Mm. And, um, you know. Um, Everybody eventually turns to Beckett, Rusty. Everybody. Well, <laughs> I think, I think, I think you can, yeah, they do. I they mean, do. one of my favorite, one of my favorite shows that we did out in Haley was Waiting for Gatto. Yeah. And um, and as you know, but but you know what made that fun? What made it fun was we basically didn't care what the Becca Foundation had to say because we were out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so we didn't think they'd send anybody out. Right. So we changed the context of it so that the Vladimir and Estragon, rather than being on a road next to a tree, uh, we put them on stage in the theater um, or we put the audience on stage in the theater and we had uh, those guys inhabit the rest of the Liberty. Wow. As if that's where they lived. And they're in, in the play, they're, they're, they're 50 years together. They're vaudeville entertainers. They have that kind of a history. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have two guys play those roles that knew each other for 30 years and were vaudeville people. Hmm. And so they brought all of that to the table and that was one of my favorite experiences that I had um, out there with with that play. Again, flipping the the, the environment around. Um, so I don't know. I'm I'm trying to, you know, I, I'm just trying to think about more personal stories to tell uh, that don't require as much. Uh, support and resource. And why do you think why do you think your attention has turned that direction, Rusty? I mean, is it just, uh, I mean, is it just the natural evolution of yourself as an artist and as and as a director? Or I mean, did That's you sort of great. get it out of your system doing the big dogs, and now you're looking for something smaller? Or uh, I don't know. I th- I think it probably has a lot to do with my own personality. Um, I'm I'm by nature an introvert. And uh, with the, I don't know, the kind of societal noise that's happening right now, it makes me get a little smaller in terms of the stories I want to experience. And, um, and I think that might be a, a, a good part of it, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, I'm, I guess I'm less interested these days in having to deal with the big logistics of putting on a bigger story, you know? Right. Um, Streamlining is something that I'm, that I'm enjoying. Uh, The production of uh, John that we did here, um, for instance, that was one of the most rewarding things I've done because we did it in this old 1930s movie theater. And again, the audience was on stage. And of course the play takes place in a movie theater. So all of the action took place out in the house and on three different levels and up in the, in the um, 
projection booth and all those things. It was an awesome, intimate experience and something that I, I, I just don't think I would get the same kind of nourishment out of a more conventional uh, approach to things right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, you, you know, you, you will recall my training and my uh, initial experience was setting Shakespeare in on, you know, disused railway tunnels and in that's right. old, that's right. old that's Victorian awesome. glass houses. And I was like, man, I don't really want a proscenium. Uh, that's I'm trapped. <laughs> I feel trapped in that. Um, but yeah, I mean, luckily we have the, the great pleasure of performing at the Liberty, which is a beautiful, beautiful building. And, and yes, it is. Oh, I mean, she's just, I love that theater. It has so much personality. I so love it she, too. She, she can fight you. She can definitely fight you. <laughs> Uh, but but at the end of the day, that the Liberty is a, is a beautiful place uh, to produce work. Absolutely. I mean, I, just listening to you talk, I'm I'm really fascinated and and I, I'm so interested in what is going to happen. While I, 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 my instinct is telling me that theater artists are missing intimacy and missing that deep level of connection. That's what I'm getting from my friends, from my colleagues, from people like yourself, where people are just really talking about taking a pause and, and feeding themselves in order to be strong and ready to go when this, when this pandemic is over and we sort of get to find out what the new world looks like for theater artists. And, and it's my hope that, that people continue to focus on that intimacy and on creative use of spaces, right? I think yeah. one of the things we're talking about here at The Fools is what happens if the theater reopens, but we but we have to have social distancing rules in the seating. We have to do every other seat, every other row. Um, you know, what is that, what is, it, what is the opportunity there for us? Do we think about using a different space? Do we go outdoors? Do we, do we try and figure out other ways of telling our stories that aren't necessarily as constrained by the physical structure of our building? Um, because those physical structures may not be relevant in the next six to eight months, right? I think, I think those are all essential questions. I don't know that anybody has an answer to those yet. Um, well, I was expecting you to tell me the answer, Rusty. You, promi you promised <laughs> no, no, no. me you would tell me the answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I had, a, I had a teacher once that said, uh, early decisions in the theater are at best conventional and at worst will be awful. And, <laughs> well, there's and no I, hope. <laughs> I've, tried to, I've tried to follow that advice as much as possible in my career. That is fantastic. I love that. Will you say it again for me, just so I can? Um, so this this gets back to the whole um, kind of structure of commercial theater in America. Um, when you have to make decisions about things before you've even had a chance to uh, meet your cast, and you're making artistic decisions early because that's what the the, uh, the time frame requires. Um, and your designers are all over the country and you're doing it all via computer or whatever. Um, I, it's a true thing. The, er, if you have to make early decisions before it is time, uh, artistically, they are at best conventional choices. And I think at worst, they're, they're usually bad choices. Hmm. I love you know? that. That, that, I mean, 
I'm going to steal it and not give you credit. You can okay? totally steal it. Okay. But it really, it, the credit goes to the credit goes to Walt Whitcover. Okay, great. I'm never going to remember that. So I'm going to just say you said it, if that's okay. <laughs> uh, and it also goes back to the whole idea of company versus right. um, commercialism. And uh, that's, I, I think, I think that's always been in the core of my artistic self since the day I went to conservatory. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, my great hope, and I'm going to ask you to sort of give me your thoughts on your great hope for the future of, of theater with the, you know, with the implications of all this that's going on. My great hope for theater is that we stop trying to play by rules that have not been supportive of our artistry, right? That, I mean, you mentioned equity and three weeks and three weeks rehearsal and three week performances and you know, making all the decisions about who's going to be in your show and how to design it before you even get in the room. And right. we're all sort of really, really pushed and have been for decades to sort of follow that model because it's efficient and it maximizes the financial potential and all of that kind of stuff. And my great hope is that this gives us an opportunity to really sit back and say, are we served as artists by right. those restrictions? Um, by the by the the forced process that we find ourselves in are we served and are our audiences served by that um again i don't know the answer but my suspicion is that we are not particularly well served as artists by that process i don't think so i i also think uh what where it gets tricky is i'm not sure that our training institutions are providing uh the kind of uh, experience that let theater artists know what to do with time. Hmm. You know, it, we're still living in a world where if if I'm just casting randomly and it, I'm not casting and working with people that know what I do, um, people come to rehearsal and they just wait for you to tell them what to do and where right. to go. Right. I don't get that because that's that to me is not collaboration. And so I, I want actors to have skills to come into the room and be a participant and, a, and an artistic and creative contributor so that then I can respond to their own creativity as opposed to having to make it all up myself. Right. And to, which is, frank, frankly, that is painful to me. You and I have got to co-direct something because what I say, what I say to the actors is I don't have enough time or energy to make your decisions for you. But what I can do is have a very strong opinion about the choices you are making. Absolutely. And that, and that will, that is the, my, my best role as a director is to tell you what I think of your choices um, and, and to, and to discuss those choices with you and how it serves the story. So uh, you and yeah, you and I, we gotta, we gotta make, we gotta figure out a way to work together, Rusty. <laughs> we can do that. We can both just sit in the back of the room and roll our eyes. It'll be great. <laughs> so if you had to say what your what your sort of big grand hope for the future of our art form given the moment we're in, what would you what would you say? Um this is probably gonna sound a little trite, but if I think if you dig a little bit, it's not. Um I I my hope for our art form is that we will um, have a better understanding of what it is to be present. 
um, and have the skill or the skills to be alive and present and responsive and not someone who has scored their part and repeats it every night. Mm -hmm. um, I just, I, I don't see enough of that. Uh, and, and honestly, Scott, I, I don't really get out to the theater very much. Um, I have found that I'm more often disappointed than not. And I just try to be supportive of everybody that's doing stuff. And, uh, but I'm, I, I'm going to give my attention to film because even though that's a, a captured moment between the players, uh, to me, it feels very much alive when, when it's done well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would love for theater and theater practitioners to reinvest in what it means to be alive on stage. I think that's, that's, that's a big one for me. And what a perfect time to, to spend some time in the quietness that we have around us at the moment, contemplating what that, what that looks like, right? Yeah. How do we yeah. reinvest? How do we breathe new life into, into our theaters that are dark right now and are just <laughs> hungry? They're hungry for us to come back and they're ready for us to fill those spaces with life. I love that. I think that's, I think that's super smart, Rusty Wilson. <laughs> I don't think uh, it's tried at all. I think it's I read amazing. It somewhere. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I hope that your hope comes true. That's what I hope. Um, yeah, th thank you so much for taking the time uh, very to, welcome, to, to speak with me. It's always, it's, I, it's great. I mean, it's just great to hear your voice and it's really great to get your thoughtfulness and your insights. Um, thank you. My, of course, my pleasure. I'm Scott Palmer. I am producing artistic director of Company of Fools, the theater company that Rusty founded. And on this episode, we were talking with the very first of all the fools, Rusty Wilson himself. Rusty is a freelance theater artist based in Richmond, Virginia. He is a critically acclaimed director. And prior to moving to Richmond, Rusty spent a whole bunch of time serving as the founding artistic director of Company of Fools. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please consider supporting Company of Fools by making a donation in any amount via our podcast platform or online at our parent organization. That's the Sun Valley Museum of Art. And their website is svmoa.org. Rusty, thank you so much. And um, I, on behalf of all the fools who I told I was having this podcast with you today, they say hello and that they miss you and they hope you're well. Well, but I miss everybody too. Thank you. Give them a quick shout out and say hi to everybody. KO Absolutely. and everybody wants hey, to. Hey, all you fools. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And will you please stay safe and um, let's, let's be in touch about when we're going to co-direct something. You too, Scott. Yes, okay. let's do that. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Rusty. Thanks very much. Okay, bye-bye.